0: Hello and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We
1: hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is going to be a really exciting episode for me. I've thought a lot about this space over a number of years, and I actually know nothing about it, which is pretty standard fare. So I'm really excited to to welcome Christine So to the show today, which is going to be wonderful. So thank you for joining us. Just give us a little bit of context about who you are and where you are and what it is that you're working on just at the highest level, and then we're going to dive straight into the problem space.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me with you today. I'm Christine So, and I'm physically located in Michigan in the United States, but I work globally and have worked globally for most of my career and, frankly, most of my life. I consider myself physically here, but really very much working across the world with many people and many cultures. I'm an epidemiologist by training. I've got a PhD in epidemiology and spent many years working on healthcare systems in low-resource settings, especially in Africa. And the topic that we're talking about today, global development, I was on the implementation side, the applied side of global development for many years, and saw all of the challenges that we had trying to actually deliver on the commitments that we'd made to the populations and communities we worked with and to the donors who were giving us money. And as a result, I ended up joining Humentum, where I'm the CEO and president. And Humentum really works on the operations side of things. We work with organizations and big organizations that you've heard of and small organizations you probably haven't heard of to help them improve their operating models, to improve their efficiencies, to use best practices and how they actually execute their work. But also, we really focus on introducing the ideas of equity, resilience, and accountability into everything that they do. And we are trying to really push this across the sector of global development to make the way that we work more equitable, more fair, and actually more productive.
1: Beautiful. Okay. And we're going to get into a lot more detail on the humantum side first, but as we always do here, we want to start with the problem space and probably some definitions. I'm assuming epidemiology is the study of epidemics in a way. I just want to make sure I've understood that word correctly.
2: It is. It is. The, yes, indeed. And we got our 15 minutes of fame during the COVID-19 pandemic. Years
1: of fame, I might argue. In,
2: Indeed. <laughs> yes.
1: But the definition I really want to land on is this definition of global development, because this is a term that gets thrown around a lot. I don't fully understand it. And I think to really break that down and maybe as well, and this might be the follow on question, but the global development, maybe in the the context of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, because I get the feeling there's an interaction between those two.
2: In fact, I would say that they're not quite interchangeable, but they're very close. The UN Sustainable Development Goals are what I would consider global development. And global development has been encapsulated by the UN Sustainable Development Goals. It really is the idea that we are working across the globe to raise the quality of life for all people. And one thing that's important is that global development and certainly the Sustainable Development Goals grow out of over a hundred years of philanthropy and charity, charitable giving, charitable acts that were rooted in the idea of Western European and North American people doing good for those who were poor and marginalized in countries, especially in Africa and Asia and Latin America. But in fact, this has evolved so that now we are, working in the era of the Sustainable Development Goals, where really we're talking about universal standards of quality of living mm-hmm. and quality of life and well-being. It's not singling out any particular geography. It's really saying that across the world, we want to see that all people enjoy certain standards of living, certain freedoms and ability to access education, to access healthcare, access democratic institutions. And so really, it has evolved into the idea that this is a universal principle.
1: Yeah. And the thing I'm curious about, because quite often you hear of globalization being painted in a negative kind of, you know, stereotype or problematic, and I'm sure there are like issues or issues with globalization. But the idea that we say, look, there's a whole bunch of disparate things that are happening in, in, in a variety of places, but we've not centralized them, but pull them to, into a common language that says these 17 things are things that matter to everyone, wherever you are, and they're important. So we potentially are going to be doing better as a society and as a planet if we align some of these things. Is that kind of how this arc of the story, how we've landed to this idea of global development and these 17 things, how we got here to where we are today, just at a framework level?
2: I think so and it's really been a push for a an approach that embraces equality and equity right. and says it's not we shouldn't be working in a dynamic where it's rich people giving to poor people as because of their own guilt or because gotcha. of well there's a very strong debate around reparations and there's a lot there and that would be take a long time to unpack and has value but I think what we've moved towards is saying We are all equal. We all are, we all deserve equal care and standards of living. And now let's put together a framework that brings us all along to the same levels. It also recognizes that there are rich countries like the United States, like Canada, like Australia, where in fact, If you look at it at a country level, you can say, oh, well, that's a rich country. They don't have those problems. But in fact, if you unpack that and you look at it at a disaggregated level in terms of different populations, different communities, different geographies, that in fact, there are incredible inequalities present and they really need to be addressed. So no, nobody has figured this out yet.
1: Well, entirely figured it out. The challenges are everywhere. I guess the reason why I'm interested in this, because I think this provides a a layer of thinking and a framework for then how organizations, NGOs or private companies or governments move into to to try to address or improve these types of issues, gives them a, a way of thinking. But it also seems like it starts to provide some layer of standardization for how one thing that's been solved or improved or done well in one area might be applicable in another area. Is that kind of how this Is playing out? Is that what it's useful for as well?
2: So I think that there's a real argument for working globally in that you can bring together experiences from all over and really start to standardize some approaches that you have best practices and you want to share the learning that's going on in different places. At the same time, you can't go in with a cookie cutter approach. You can't say, well, this worked this way in one place, so it's going to work that way If we apply it somewhere else with a different population, you need to have the nuance. You need to have the local knowledge and the local expertise brought into the conceptualization of the problems, the design of the solutions and the application of the interventions. Mm -hmm. And so it's a balance between wanting to identify what we know will work and at the same time, saying, well, but at the, each situation is a bit different and things need to be adapted to the setting in which they're being carried out. Yeah. This kind of takes us to this idea of what we call locally led development, which yeah. is becoming a big deal in global development and really has gotten traction. And the idea is basically that I'm going to give you a hypothetical we shouldn't be sitting in, Was- in an office in Washington, D.C., designing a clean water program for a sub-district in northern Kenya. Right. Because the people sitting in Washington, D.C., most likely don't know a whole lot about what the reality is on the ground in sure. that sub-district in northern Kenya. What we should be doing is really taking the place where the problem exists and the population, the community that is affected by the problem and putting them at the forefront of identifying what are the priorities they feel they need to address, what are the solutions that they can bring to this, and then seeing how we can support them in actually implementing those solutions. So we go from being Northern-driven to locally-led.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then just in terms of how that kind of looks today with regards to the NGOs or the organizations themselves that are providing help, I think you used the word intervention, which is, yeah. I, I might need you to explain that word as well. No, I mean, I literally understand it, but in yeah. this context, <laughs> I kind of want to understand what it looks like. Because if you walk down Martin Place in Sydney, for example, there'll be someone with a clipboard who's asking you to sign up for Greenpeace or Oxfam or yeah. one of the very well-known ones, my guess is there's definitely these large players who have massive footprints and are in a lot of places. But this is contrasted with a lot of smaller, more nimble, maybe more recently set up organizations as well. What's the play? What, is the, what, are, what do NGOs look like today at a global level?
2: Sure. Well, so an NGO is a non-governmental organization. They're also frequently called nonprofits. It's not a perfect definition, but close enough. And NGOs, in in our world, we talk about international NGOs and national or local NGOs. Right. And international NGOs are like the ones that you've just mentioned, are organizations that typically have a centralized headquarters, and then they have what they call their country programs. And take Oxfam. Oxfam might have a headquarters somewhere and then could have 60 countries where they work and they have a country program or country office in each one of those. Countries. And so there is a centralized way of working, and then there is the decentralized application, the decentralized projects that they implement. Right. At the same time, we see a growing phenomenon of local and national NGOs and really. It is also, again, referred to as civil society organizations. So mm-hmm. organizations that are in communities that are working at a dist- district level or a state level or a national level within a country and working within their own geographies. Right. And so typically those are organizations that were started by people in the community to work for the community and are led by people from the community. What we're seeing now is these large international NGOs really taking a hard look at their business models and Mm. thinking about, is it equitable? Is it appropriate for us to be running these programs from a centralized headquarters and calling the shots from there and sending the money from there? Or should we actually be shifting to helping those local and national organizations strengthen their capacity really build their systems and actually put them at the forefront of the projects that are being implemented. So we're seeing a shift in the sector in the way that people work and that these organizations are
3: working.
1: Yeah, and this is the bit that I've been curious about for probably five or seven years now is this idea that if you have someone who's highly motivated to solve the problem and is close to the problem and is surrounded by people, supporters, financial or otherwise who are also heavily invested in the problem for whatever reason. They may have come out of that background and they used to live there or whatever has motivated them. But as long as they're run as efficiently as a someone who might be larger, who might have different economies of scale, I imagine the hypothesis is they would be able to have on a per capita basis a much higher impact. Is that kind of what you're sending, saying, and hypothesizing? So
2: that's basically it. I think the other th- idea is really just this thought that people who are close to the problem understand the problem best. Right. And they actually may be able to do a better product or project or intervention to address the problem because right. they're actually really in tune with what's going on and the reality in that particular situation. I think... The issue that we see, which is a very real issue, is that because of the way that global development has evolved, these big organizations are seen as having proven themselves Mm. by funders. And so they typically get the money. They are trusted partners. Right. Whereas... Smaller organizations that tend to be younger organizations and are really building their own capacity as they go are not as trusted by funders, not necessarily because they've done anything wrong, but because the funders don't have a long track record with them. And so funders may be less willing to give them the money they need to do the work that they want to do. And funders tend to use these international organizations as intermediaries. So they give the money to the international organization. The international organization then gives the money to a smaller organization.
1: Got it. And I was curious about that part because I felt part of it may also be that if you're a brand and you're like, hey, look, we do want to put $5 a year into a problem, you would probably start with a broader problem set like the environment rather than water and sanitation in North Kenya, to use your example, from before. And to say to someone, let's solve water and sanitation generally, okay, maybe Bill Gates is having a crack. But when you actually want to create an impact, you have to go down to, well, what's the issue with this particular locale or village or city to actually to, to get boots on the ground? And are these larger kind of brands, for want of a better word, starting to just play an intermediary role where they're like, you know what, we're not best placed to deliver the programs and we actually just have to work out how to allocate the capital? Or is that still inefficient so far as it might actually be better to work at how to get the capital to the programs themselves.
2: So it depends on the organization. We Mm. really see a spectrum of change and openness to transformation in these large organizations. Some of them are very much saying we are going to work ourselves out of a job. That is our goal. And we are going to find smaller organizations that we can invest in and eventually transfer over what we've been doing to them. Mm. We see some large organizations saying, we're going to open our own country-level organizations that become our affiliates and our treasured partners. And those smaller organizations then are doing the work. And then some of these big organizations say, "Nope, we're good. We're good with our model and we're not going to change it. We are seeing... Commitments from international funders. So when I talk about funders, I'm referring to private foundations as well as bilateral governments. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the United States, the U.S. Agency for International Development has said that they are going to have 25% of their funds going to local organizations. Wow. However, the, there are bottlenecks and how that's going to work because Right, Re- rules and regulations that the U.S. government as a large bureaucracy yeah. has put in place don't necessarily work to get the funding to those small organizations. Right. And so they are trying to work out how this actually happens. And we at Humentum are really looking at that level of challenge where, you know, at the highest level, we've got conceptually people making commitments and talking about these really lofty ideas. And then there's the second level down where it's, well, how do we actually do this? Right. And that's where we come in because we work to identify like, oh, well, what policies are getting in the way because they haven't been adapted to actually make this happen? -hmm. How can we help facilitate the discussions around policy change? An example we run into a lot is that typically individual funding agencies want to do audits every year of the money that they are giving to the recipient organization. Well, if you are a small organization with one accountant and 50 people, and you've got four funding sources, and each one of them wants to do its own individual audit, you spend your entire year doing the audit rather than doing the work. Absolutely. So that's an (laughs) example of where we would come in and say, on a larger scale, we'd say, is there a way that we can work with funders to have them agree on a minimum set of requirements mm-hmm. and then the organization just has to meet that once right. and each of these funders is going to accept that yeah that's the kind of a, an efficiency that we could introduce that will actually help the flow of funding from funding agencies to small organizations
1: understood and so I wanted to get into that because I think what I was trying to do was to kind of lay a, a foundation I guess for The nature of the way global development done has evolved quite significantly in the last 50 to 100 years, and it's still in change and flux in a lot of different directions. But the common thread, whether you're UNICEF or maybe UNICEF's a bad example, but Greenpeace or people solving the water issues in Kenya, is that there's challenges that are universal across those to varying degrees. What are those kind of four or five challenges? Because I think this is where Humentum really plays. Just help me understand those common challenges.
2: So when you're sorry when you're talking about common challenges you're talking about the operational challenges yeah
1: like the things yeah. that they all encounter regardless of whether they're 15 people or 15,000 people
2: yeah so we look at operating models really with four key components we start with institutional architecture so we look at the operating model business model governance leadership how is the organization structured mm-hmm. Secondly, it's the human capital. So it's human resources, people, and culture. Who is working in the organization? Where are they? What skills do they have? How are they compensated? Who is actually doing the work? Right. Third is funding and financial systems. So an organization, any organization working in this space, what are their sources of funding? Do they have one primary donor or do they have many donors? Do they want to shift the donors that they are asking for funding? And then what knockout effect does that have in terms of the financial systems they need to have in place? Mm -hmm. And here we see the really critical, critically important issues around financial sustainability. So we really work with a lot of organizations on the question of, do they have financial reserves? Do they have a rainy day fund? Do they have money to invest in strategic improvements that they want to do in their organization. Do they have, are they receiving the money from the donors that is needed to actually implement the project that they have been funded for? Mm -hmm. That's the third area. And the fourth area is risk and compliance. So Mm -hmm. it's really around what kind of partnerships are put in place? What are the requirements put in place between a funder and an organization that's going to implement the project? And we are trying to really help that sector move from a compliance system that has really been based on mistrust and suspicion and fraud everywhere to one based on trust. We are looking at this organization because we see that they do excellent work. They've already executed projects with other funders we are going to trust them and we are going to put in place much more a partnership of equals rather than a top-down kind of policing right. partnership right. around the risk and compliance framework.
1: Perfect. And look, there's a lot in each of those four. And so I probably want to just to, to maybe focus on two of them. And I don't want to, I want, don't want to pick your two favorite children, but <laughs> one of the ones the areas I'm very interested in is this idea of people which was the second one of the four that you yeah. talked about, because there's a lot in that, and I think businesses that are for profit or impact led understand this quite well. And you made a point just before we jumped on the show about how that how you don't fund these business properly and hire great people and get them working in the right way that you are unlikely to get the outsized results and impact. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about the the role that you guys play in Humenda Pays in the performance of people, or the hiring of people, or just that aspect generally, and also. How it's that's different in, a, in an NGO versus perhaps a for-profit as well?
2: Yeah. Well, so I'd start with saying that so much of the work that NGOs do is thought-based. It's We are thinking organizations. We are not producing golf balls and selling golf balls. We are working with communities. We are figuring out pedagogy for education and local languages for mm. children who don't want to, so that kind of work which means that the people who work in the NGOs are really their primary asset. Mm. And so they need to be able to have people who are well-trained, who understand the issues, who are competent in the technical areas, and who have really deep cross-cultural skills frequently, Mm. going into communities, working with communities on a one-to-one basis, building trust. If we don't recognize that those people should be paid competitively, we're going to lose those people to the private sector. We're going to lose those people to going off and making golf balls. We need, as just a basic principle, to recognize the value that people bring to the work that they are doing. And I argue that for across the global development sector, we at Humentum look at compensation both in terms of you know, how we help the organizations that we work with, but also our own compensation system. Mm. We actually redid our compensation system several years ago to have equity-based compensation so that we are paying on one global scale. We are competitive against really clearly defined benchmarks. So we, momentum. Humentum, one of our values is walking the talk. And so that's one of the ways that we do that. Globally, in the global development sector, one of the things that we've seen is that big international organizations have had a history of paying people who are located in New York or Washington, D.C. or Paris or London twice as much as somebody who's located the same person doing the the same job located in Nairobi or Johannesburg or Bamako, Mm. simply because that person is in Africa. Right. And so one of the things that we saw that was very interesting with the global pandemic was that the people who had been the global experts living in Washington, D.C. and flying in and out of African capitals, for example,
3: mm.
2: couldn't travel. Right. So all of a sudden, these organizations had to trust the people that they had on staff right. in those places. Right, And that actually created a real momentum around the idea of introducing decentralized leadership hmm. and and distributed leadership. And they these organizations are figuring out that they can work remotely. They can have executives all over the world. They don't all have to be sitting in the same place. Hmm. And this has had a real impact on their thinking around compensation and how they compensate fairly for the work that is being done. That's just one example, but it's been really dynamic Mm. and has just, there's been so much evolution over the last three years.
1: It was going to be one of my questions. And I don't, I think there's people argue, well, if there's people who live in an expensive place, you have to pay them because that's where they live. But then also the argument is, well, if you got the person, right person for the job, then pay them for the value that's being provided and get the best possible person you can. Is that kind of at the core of equity-centered development? Is that what that term relates to or is that something else?
3: So it is.
2: I think that we all struggle with the question of cost of living and making sure that you're being fair about the cost of living of where they are located. Some of it, again, goes back to this idea of benchmarking salaries and having transparent salary scales so that we can actually see how much is being paid and we can peg salaries to appropriate amounts for the geography. One question that we all are looking at within global development and I think still struggling with is the idea that if you pay somebody a global rate and they're living in a place where that global rate is significantly higher than what people around them are being paid, Mm. that it actually it manipulates or introduces perverse incentives and such in the labor market in that place because there are some people who are getting paid wildly out of scale with what the local going rate is. And so that's the kind of thing, again, that people, that these organizations are grappling with as global organizations.
1: Understood. And just coming back a little bit to the, part of this is what to pay people and how to set them up for success. But some of the other stuff that was quite interesting to me, just browsing through your site and through the materials, was trying to understand there's some aspects of skills development that, that yeah. people need when they're trying to solve prob- problems of a global nature, and I want to yeah. talk a bit about those more broadly, but specifically resilience. Can you just go into a bit of that for us?
2: Sure. Yeah. One of the things we talk about capacity strengthening, we don't talk about capacity building because we believe that everybody comes with capacity. Okay. It's just identifying what you need and how you strengthen it. And one of the things that smaller organizations struggle with yeah. is when they're not being Um, funded adequately to do the things that they're expected to do. They Mm -hmm. don't have the money to put into helping people build their skills and expertise. And one of the things that we do quite frequently is we actually get funding from large funding agencies to work with their beneficiary organizations or organizations that they just want to see be able to develop. And so we provide, we're paid to work with those organizations to, for example, help them build their financial sustainability skills and toolbox. Mm -hmm. We can help them think through what their resilience plan is. How do they do scenario planning? How do they develop budgets so that when one project ends, and the next project hasn't started, they don't go under. So right. those are the kinds of very practical things that we work with these organizations on. I think when we think about the idea of resilience, it really is an organization's ability to react and be agile in the face of an unexpected shock. Right. And so again, with the going before years. the pandemic, we all <laughs> used to joke about, oh, what do we do with... Everything shuts down tomorrow, and then it happens. (laughs) So that taught us a lot of lessons about what resilience means in practice. Mm. The other thing I'd really stress about the idea of resilience is it's not building sustainability or building expertise to a certain level, and then you say, oh, we're done. It's good you can work with an organization and help train their chief financial officer, for example. And then one day that person says, oh, sorry, I got a different job. I'm moving. And they're gone. And then you have to be working with the organization again to react to an unexpected shock, Mm -hmm. to be agile, to have backup scenarios so that they don't Sink when something like that happens. So for yeah. us, that's what resilience means: is sustainability, but also really being able to roll with what's happening at any particular time.
1: And look, the reason why I tied in on that is we often think of resilience as personal resilience rather than organizational resilience, and yeah. obviously those things are interconnected. But the idea that if someone decides they want to take a new job or take two years off to go and have kids or sabbatical, that the organization soldiers forward, sure, it has to adjust course, but but isn't bound to that just as a slight tangent i'm curious to understand is covid and the pandemic a resulting couple of years net positive for global development or net negative like how has that actually played out
2: <laughs> i i think i would be foolish to answer that in such black and white terms but okay. <laughs> what i will definitely say is that this goes back to this idea of resilience mm. you have you You can't be faced with a crisis and just throw up your hands and say, okay, I give up. It's bad. I can't, I, there's no good that can come out of it. You need to face the crisis, acknowledge what's going on, do your best analysis of what's still working, what's not working. And then you have to evolve. You have to change. And I think that a big lesson that we saw from the pandemic, whether it was in global development or in business is, the organizations that came through it the best were the ones that were able to move and change mm. as the situation evolved. evolved. And, yeah. and I can tell you, at Humentum, we were just talking about this earlier today, before the pandemic, we were doing in-person training hundreds of in-person trainings a year in 40 cities across the globe. Right. I joined Humentum at the end of 2019. And when I joined, my number one concern was the risk, the security risk mm. of having all of these in-person trainings going on because hotels were getting blown up in various places. Right. And that kind of risk was really real. And for me, looking at my organization, I said, well, how are we... What are we going to do if that happens to us? What are how are we equipped to manage this? Mm-hmm. The pandemic came along overnight. We had to cancel all of those trainings right. and we had to move all of our training business online and develop an entirely new skill set to deliver our content and expertise to in some cases a very different audience in a very different way. And right.
1: With the same that's outcome my own or better outcome. That's a personal example
2: of resilience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just, and it sounds like in some respects, Humentum is somewhat of a petri dish, might not be the right word, but it's a proving ground for the types of things you're having to take out the organizations you serve. So yeah. I've mean, just picked that up a couple of times.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And at Humentum, we very much try to apply the things that we're telling organizations they should be doing. Yeah. And we try to learn from them and think about how that influences what we do both internally and then what we bring back to them.
1: Yeah. And just changing gears a little bit, you spoke just before about the ability to and the need to attract funding and retain funding from a variety of sources. And in some respects, those funders are looking for measures. And there's some degree of advocacy to say, can you just all ask me the same stuff and I'll give you the one report, not four different reports. But there's also a measure of typically what is required for a funder to make a decision to continue to support a particular NGO. I'm curious about what those measures might be that could be applicable to any of those Sustainable Development Goals. Obviously, there'll be specific ones relating to the particular problem they're solving. And then I'm also interested... Just in terms of either the efficiency of an NGO or its effectiveness, do we know what good looks like? Do you have a sense to say that you can go and sit with an organization for a week and say, you're a C plus, sorry, but here's where we need to get you to a B. And once you get into B territory, you're gonna get funding. If you get to A, you know, all bets are off. Like how much do you understand about that from a maybe a qualitative or and a quantitative perspective these days?
2: Yeah. No, those are good questions. I think in terms of the metrics, again, it depends on Within a funding organization, it depends on who you're talking to, the risk and compliance folks want to see that you've turned in your reports and that you've checked the boxes. And you can account for the funds that you've been given. Sure. The program people want to see, typically you'll have the metrics of the things that you've said you're going to deliver. Going back to that water and sanitation example, have you put in the boreholes that you said you were going to install? Sure. Do the Are the latrines and the improved toilets available in the primary schools that you said you were going to get? in place. Mm -hmm. So that's actually delivering on those commitments. So they're looking at that. Did you deliver on time? Were you able to do everything that you said you were going to do? We live in a world, again, going back to that idea of unexpected shocks, where things are always getting in the way of what you've said you were going to do. And so I think then I would say the more successful relationships are relationships where funders and their funding or funded organizations Can really work in partnership and be able to have a dialogue as they go so that the funding agency understands what's going on. If something is delayed or if they have to change course in terms of what they can actually do Mm -hmm. and that the organization trusts the funding agency enough to not be punitive, but rather they can go to them and say, Hey, we've had this change. Can we work through together with you a different way to approach this or? We don't need more money, but we need the money on a slightly different schedule because of the way that we need to work. Right. One of our partners refers to partnerships of consequence, and for me, a partnership of consequence is one where there is bilateral respect and where really there is a working partnership and not just a top-down approach to it. Mm. So I think I I think there may have been another. Part of your
3: question, but yeah, I,
1: I think the thing that someone with a semi kind of technical mechanical mind always trying to look for some form of framework or binary outcome that says the yeah. thing is happening or it isn't happening, and I know it's a spectrum. So yeah, um,
2: what does good look like? Yes. Yeah, what does
1: good look like, and <laughs> can you measure it? Is that possible? I'm sure.
2: Well, I, again, if we're talking qualitative, I would say what does good look like? Good looks good looks like fewer dead kids. It looks like kids who can read. It looks like women who can access the reproductive and just general health care they need. So you've got, there are standard indicators. And going back to the sustainable development goals, health has always been the leader on these standard indicators in developing standard indicators. And looking at those health indicators and saying, are they improving? That's really important. But I think the other part of it is this idea of equity Going back to the idea that we can't just say, let's look at the standard for the whole country. Rather, we need to break it down and look at it for different economic quintiles. We need to look at it for different ethnic groups. Are we achieving these indicators in a way that is applicable to everybody and isn't leaving somebody out? Right. So I think that's one way what is good look like in terms of the organizations who are actually doing the work. Does the community want them to come back?
1: fairly simple measure.
2: (laughs) That's a pretty basic one. Are they welcome back? Does the government, do they have a working relationship with the government, even if Mm -hmm. that could be a challenging thing? You want to be, you want to be asked back. You want to be seen as a valued contributor. Mm -hmm. And that's a point for me, that's a good indicator.
1: Yeah. And where I'm going with this is in kind of understanding and unpacking what Humentum does, and I'm going to play it back. So correct me where I'm wrong, but A lot of it relates to the transference of knowledge and skill and thinking around how to approach governance and finance and risk, resilience and people. And these are still, and you said it before, if you have to go and do training in 40 different cities, you're having to impart knowledge at a one-to-one level. And I'm, I'm curious to understand, at some point, Humentum has an embodied knowledge around how to do that so well that it evolves, moves From just the people aspect to a platform aspect where it actually provides the tooling. Is that kind of the journey that you guys are on there?
2: Well, I'd say uh, it's a journey we've been on for a long time. In fact, yes, we work at an individual and an organizational level, but we also very much work at a global level and at a policy level. Mm -hmm. And for instance, over during 2022, we did more than 300 convenings. We talked to thousands of people and we brought what we found in those discussions into a series of three reports that have been published they are available on our website. But we have a policy blueprint for locally led development. We have an ERA index, E for equity, R for resilience, and A for accountability. Yeah. It's an index that we launched last year, but we're intending to do every year where we talk to international NGOs, national NGOs, and really check in with them on where they are on this journey to transform the way that they work to be more equitable, resilient, and accountable. That's mm-hmm. the second report. The third report was just released last week, and it's a report of interviews and insights coming from discussions that we had with more than 50 leaders of national and local NGOs. Right. We hear lots of discussion globally about locally led development. We hear of very few local voices in those discussions. Right. And so we went to them and we said to them, what does locally led development mean to you? Are you part of the conversation? What do you think all of us need to hear? And so that's summarized in that report. So, you know, that's the broader ranging work that we are doing because we very much want to have an influence on the sector as a whole, not just on individuals and organizations. The other quick point I'll make is we also implement some global policy projects. And so, for instance, right now, we are four years into a project where it's not even a project, it's an initiative because it is ongoing. Right. We have funding from more than five foundations to put together nonprofit accounting standards For use globally. Mm -hmm. So if you this is getting into the weeds, but if you're an accountant and you're putting together your P&L, your financial report, you want to work to a standard. And there are nonprofit accounting standards for in some countries, but there is not a global standard for nonprofit accounting. And so we are working again. We've had contributions on this initiative For people in more than 180 countries, all over the world, people are participating and contributing to the development of these standards. Yeah. So when that is done, that's something that will be launched, will be available for adoption by countries. We're working with countries so that they understand what it is and why it's important. And that's going to raise the quality Mm -hmm. of the financial accounting and the financial reporting anywhere it's
1: used. Yeah, and the consistency and the transferability of that. So a funder who says it here can get it there.
2: Yeah, and if you're one of these small organizations, you're going to be able to say, I'm using the same standard Mm. as the nationally adopted standard for nonprofits.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that was where I was going with the question was because once you really intimately understand this challenge and then you can start to normalize, if you would use a technical term, or homogenize or standardize, if you like, how to think about some of the measures and metrics, put that into some form of standard. Then people say, that's the standard, we're happy with that. You're then one step from going to someone like a Zero or a QuickBooks or someone and saying, can you install a version that is designed for nonprofits so they can standardize their reporting according to this new standard so that anyone who uses that can then do the reporting, which will then drive more funding in or better connect a funder with the outcomes that they're looking for. And I think that feels like the evolution to a platform play as much as a, kind of a policy?
2: Very much. I think, yes, moving towards automation and Mm. helping or creating platforms where organizations can just go in and with very little support, be able to actually do this for themselves is absolutely the next step. It's something that we dream of being able to work on. Frankly, we don't have the funding for it now, but that's something that we see as the natural next step. And so we're really hoping that... It's something that we can evolve into in the next couple of years because there's so much of this that could be translated into platforms and technologies that just, again, take everything to the next level in mm-hmm. terms of usability and just moving the conversation a big step forward.
1: Yeah, and all of this ultimately is an aim of in service of what you were saying right up front, which is how are you spending less of the time running the thing and operating it well. Yeah. And attracting the funding, so you can go back to solving the actual problem. <laughs>
3: exactly. Do, do you
2: what, the, what you want to spend your time on is solving the really difficult, thorny problems that you know are going. If you can solve them, are going to make people's lives better. You don't want to have to spend your time doing four different audits for four different funders. That's yeah. not the
1: best use. Of them. To, to use that thread of an example. I just have one last question that kind of rounds all of that out because we've teased into some of the things that are coming out imminently in terms of some of these reports and where the standard is heading. Yeah. Just what are the kind of the one or two big levers for Humentum that you that are right in front of you at the moment? And I want, I'm curious about them in the context of where you're trying to go with regards to how many NGOs you might be assisting or how you might be assisting them differently.
2: Well, going back to this question of automation, right now we really work on an organization by organization basis. Mm -hmm. I think we would like to move it to having some sort of a cloud-based platform where a lot of this is available. And so that would really be able to exponentially change the number of organizations that we can support at any one time. Whether it's us or whether it's others, I think it's really looking at, I think how technology can help us to automation sounds too rote, I think, right. but at least to facilitate some of this really complex work that's being done, but that mm. does have components that are really standard and really repeatable. So that is something that we are definitely looking at. I think the other thing that we really are focusing on right now, and again, we're starting to feel that we're getting traction on this, is that the sexy issues are the ones around water and sanitation and maternal health and vaccination and right. education. The things that are less sexy are about, like, oh, how do we standardize due diligence? How do we reduce the number of statutory audits? Right. But that stuff is really important. We are really interested in raising the visibility of the importance of good systems, good infrastructure strong operating models, and that those are all things that funders should be investing in, Mm. in the way that they're investing in the what I would refer to as the technical or thematic areas. Yeah, Because, again, they'll get bigger bang for their buck. They will get lasting impact, lasting traction, if we can actually improve the way that the systems and the infrastructure function.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's spot on for what we talk about in this show. So this is like Get an up. in the pocket interview for the idea of shaping the system. What I actually love about it for what you guys are doing is you're shaping the system to, for people who are also shaping the system. Like it's the ultimate yeah. meta example. Christine it was really lovely having you on the show. I'm really excited for what you're doing. I, I have some stuff that I may be able to contribute beyond the show as well, which I'll definitely want to talk to you about. I just think the one, one closing question for me. I know I said that before, but this one is the closing question. It's just, in terms of the organizations that are right in the sweet spot for you with where you're at the moment, just let me know what that organization looks like, because in case we have people like that working there, li- listening to this show, I just want to make sure that they understand that they're that the right fit for for where you're at and the services you provide.
2: Sorry, I just want to be clear. You want to me to name organizations no, or no, kind of be you, a more yeah. archetype? If yeah. you've just
1: started an NGO and you're working yeah. in one locality, are you the right st- stage for this, or is it you're going well, and okay, things perfect. are going well, like, well? Yeah, yeah that's clear. Yeah.
2: yeah, so we really work with organizations that are about to or already working with global funding agencies right so we are not working with the tiny organizations that may be like two people and a laptop and fifty thousand dollars a year budget yeah we really say we've got to be working with organizations that are at least at five hundred thousand a million dollars five million dollars and it's Surely, because we know what we can offer and we want to be doing the most for the organizations with whom we work. And yeah. that's what we're set up for. We also work in partnership with other organizations that can help the tiny NGOs and the ones that are really just getting started. Again, back to this idea of partnership. But the thing that we're looking at is, are you in a, an organization that feel that you are at an inflection point? Do you have a question that is on your agenda and you say, I need a review of our financial systems. They haven't been reviewed or updated in 10 years. Mm -hmm. They're not fit for purpose. Let's talk to Humentum about doing that. Right. Or for example, we are not sure that our business model is fit for purpose anymore. One of our funding sources has dried up. We think maybe we should be looking at other funding sources that might require us to change the way that we do our staffing. Let's talk to Humentum. Humentum can help us work that through. So those are the kinds of inflection points that we help organizations with. But again, going back to what we've discussed, we we have what we call open training. You can look on our website and sign up for a training course. So if you want to learn about USAID rules and regulations, you can sign up for that. You can sign up for that.
1: (laughs) I don't know what they are. What is that acronym?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Or if, you know, you're an organization that you want to make sure that everybody in your organization is trained in one particular area, that's the kind of thing that we can set up for you. So we work in different ways with different stakeholders and different client types. But really, we are there to help Other organizations solve the really critical problems that they are experiencing in their operating models to make them better and to help them deliver on the commitments that they've made to communities and to funders.
1: Perfect. That rounds it out wonderfully. Christine, we'll leave it there today. Thank you so much for being on the show and I hope this helps you and look forward to seeing some of the amazing innovations you guys have got coming out in the next short while.
0: Yeah, thank you. Lovely to speak with you. I really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change a system for the better, please go to www.sapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click Subscribe so that you get the new episode. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. It connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you are looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.